Did you know that our coping skills are formed at a very early age? Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Known as Neuro Noel, today's guest got her start as an educator and then became a trailblazer as a neuroeducator and anxiety coach. Through her work and her personal experience as a mom, she discovered how to transform key neuroscience findings into practical ways to reduce the impact of stress on children. The result was transformative. Turns out, managing stress helps the brain learn best. Her name is Noelle Foy. This is her story. Noelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Candy. It's so nice to have you here. I know you traveled all the way from Martha's Vineyard, and you didn't have to swim, though. You took a ferry, right? Not today. No. <laughs> I've windsurfed before, but not today. <laughs> it sounds like stress and anxiety are no good for a child's brain. You got that right. And I was really noticing a lot of kids in stress states when I was out in schools. And I'd be observing classrooms and just noticing a lot of kids freaking out, spacing out kind of having that deer in the headlights look, putting their head down on the desk, playing dead. It just wasn't a good state for learning. And I wanted to learn more about that. Parents learned firsthand, Noelle, about stress and anxiety during COVID. And I think it got us closer and closer to what our kids may have been going through in school. But kids are still trying to make their way back from COVID. From your perspective, as a neuroeducator, what long-term issues our kids still struggling with post-COVID? I think some social situations are still getting in their way. They kind of got into some habits of not being face-to-face with people as often. And I feel that socially, I'm seeing kids a little bit behind and teachers are telling me like kids entering into kindergarten, first grade, or even at the middle school and high school that the kids aren't socially at the same levels that they had seen in the past. And avoiding conversations a little bit more, especially if it's something that involves a challenge. And just like some of the basic conversational kinds of skills that we would make an assumption that kids might have by a certain grade level. So I think that was probably one of the biggest was not having the face-to-face interactions. Let's go back a few years. You noticed that your own sons were having trouble learning and they hated school. This inspired you to try to figure out why. As a teacher, at that time, that was a real hard thing for me to swallow that my kids did not like school, but they love learning. So I was trying to figure out why is this? And I was noticing a lot of kids also showing similar behaviors and not enjoying school. I also was noticing this spike in anxiety. And I said, I got to learn more about this. So I went to the learning and brain conferences, and that's where I learned about the impact that stress has on learning. So if your brain is in a state of anxiety or anger or frustration, and this was a real eye-opener for me, if you're feeling bored or you're feeling a lack of relevance to what you're doing, that can hijack your brain like you can get highly stressed, and then that hijacks your executive function. Now, those thinking skills that you need to start work and complete it and stick with it when it's hard, that kind of goes out the window in those moments. For parents who might not know what it means, explain executive function. Executive function is these mental processes that you need that you would use to organize, to plan something, to prioritize your time management, but it also includes your self-regulation. 
So your ability to regulate yourself when things aren't going so well, if you hit a roadblock, and your ability to start on a task, stick with it, even when it's tough, maybe make some adjustments along the way if it's not going well, and then finish it and see it to the end. So you're starting a goal, and then you're going through all those steps that you need to to complete the goal. One of your sons was diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome. Tell us what happened and how did you help him? And most importantly, how's he doing now? He had multiple concussions, mostly sports-related. That is also another trigger that led me to the Learning and Brain Conferences because I wanted to know more how the concussions were going to impact his life socially, developmentally, just brain-wise. I really went there with my son in mind, but I walked away with so much information that was so eye-opening. And as an educator, I felt, oh my goodness, I didn't learn about the impact of stress on learning as an educator. I have a graduate degree, undergraduate degree. I've been a teacher for a long time, and I just felt this is where I need to make my shift and help and support more teachers. It was really my son that got me to the Learning in the Brain Conference, and he's doing well. Thank you for asking. He has definitely learned a lot of ways that help him manage and he's got a child you know he's married and we're very excited to have our first grandchild and they're doing very well when you started trying to figure out how to help children learn you discovered some key neuroscience findings and then you turned that knowledge into ways to help children manage anxiety and stress can you give us a couple of those ways One of the first things I do is I teach kids about neuroplasticity, which is this process where your brain can continue to grow and change based on how you use it. And I find that to be really empowering for kids to learn about their brain. And it becomes like something cool that they can realize, like, I can change my brain, I can rewire my brain. So that's one of the first things I do. I teach them a lot about how to manage stress, different reset practices, breathing practices different ways to talk about things that are hard. A lot of times we might use catastrophic language or we might use language that sends a message of inflexibility or worst case scenario. And that just stresses the brain out and sends like a mayday message. And so we could be inadvertently freaking ourselves out just by the way we talk about it. So I teach them a lot about how to reframe things, how to validate how you're feeling and how to reframe it in a more productive way. You also believe that there's great value in teaching children how to learn from their mistakes, that resilience boosts executive function. Talk about that. That one I feel is super important because I feel we're in this society where a lot of kids think perfection is a goal. And I try to help them to understand that mistakes are part of the learning process. It's normal. And I was that kid who was afraid of mistakes. I was afraid of failure. And that led me to kind of avoid things that might be more challenging for me. So I try to teach kids that, did you know your brain actually gets smarter and stronger when you correct your mistakes? So making mistakes and thinking about them in a more productive way, I find to be a game changer. I bet you also have to coach parents to allow their children to fail. That is very (laughs) challenging. You see how your face just changed. (laughs) Very challenging. I understand where parents are coming from. It's hard to see your child struggle. It's hard to see your child fail. We'd rather have them fail with a few things a little bit sooner 
then later, you know, whether it's okay, they didn't study for the test and now this is the result you get and now let's make some adjustments from that. Instead of doing too much for them and doing the thinking and doing for them and then they get to college and then they flunk out. So making some mistakes along the way can really be, I think, a good thing and you can make some really good adjustments from there. I also have a firm belief that the world is not soft and the world doesn't care as much as we do as the parent. Is that true? Yeah. I want us to set kids up for success so that they have some skills. You know, I put a lot of my focus with my work is about skill building and practical applications because I want kids to have skills so that when you do hit a hiccup or you hit a roadblock, things didn't go as planned you know you can do something about it. You can take action, you can learn from it. So trying to prepare them, whether it's in school or in sports, in a job or an interview, whatever it's gonna be, these are skills that are gonna really benefit them in life. How can a parent tell the difference between a child who might be just a little frustrated in school with a child who is seriously anxious and might need some help from someone like you? I would say if it's showing up in a lot of different areas, if it's really getting in the way of their functioning in school and in social situations, we all experience anxiety from time to time. And I think it's important for kids to know that it's normal from time to time to experience anxiety. It's designed to protect us. So it's trying to tell us something. It's trying to do its job. Sometimes it's giving us some alarm messages that are false alarms. It's something that might be a little bit of a trigger, something we don't like. It's making us anxious, whether it's taking a test, getting on the bus, trying out for a team. But this is not a life-threatening situation. This is just something that's hard and it makes us anxious. It's normal to feel that way. Becoming more aware of what anxiety is telling you is really important. And then having some strategies in place of how you can manage those times so you can still try out for the team, so you can still take the test, still get on the bus. Be nervous and move forward at the same time. And I think that that's really powerful for kids to learn. What are the warning signs for a parent that you would consider to be those red flags? Avoidance is a big one. So if a child is not going to school, or every time there's a test, can I stay home? Avoidance is definitely a hallmark pattern. Rigidity is a big one, just kind of like digging in your heels and not being open at all to other alternatives or other approaches. Catastrophic thinking is another hallmark pattern, just thinking worst case scenario, being very much in one's head, very internally focused, And then I I find a lot of times anxious folks, I'm being one of them, I have an anxiety disorder, have this sense of permanence feeling that they don't think that they can do anything about it. This is just the way I am. This is the way my brain is. And I can't do anything to change it. And there's a lot you can do. We hear the word neurodivergent an awful lot these days. What does this term mean? And can you explain it to our audience? We all learn differently differently. We all have strengths, we all have abilities, we all have needs, we all have challenges, and there's no right or one way that we learn. We all bring something to the table, and I don't want us to think of those differences as deficits. You know, I want to think about them in ways of how can we improve areas that are challenging for all of us, and how can we really focus on some of the strengths. 
some students in classes say, you know, your kids with ADHD, your kids with autism, dyslexia, learning disabilities are some examples of kids who might not learn in the most traditional ways. And so if they can be in environments where they're being taught, um, especially in brain-friendly ways, ways that we know the brain likes to learn, and multisensory is definitely one of those ways. Are elementary school teachers taught how to recognize and teach neurodivergent children? I think it's becoming part of their training more, but I'm not sure to what extent in most undergraduate training, there's not a lot of classes about that, and there's not explicit instruction about executive function. You don't get explicit in training about anxiety. But right now, about 30% of kids are qualifying for an anxiety disorder. So if you think about a teacher in a classroom who could have about 30% of anxious kids, and then you have kids with autism, you have kids with learning disabilities, you have dyslexia, dysgraphia, anxiety, and other kids experiencing other challenges. It's a lot for, I feel, a teacher to manage and I don't feel they're getting sufficiently trained yet. One of the ways that children can learn is through storytelling. You have written two children's books. The first, ABC Worry-Free. Tell us about that. That is a book that was really inspired by my own anxiety and by some of the things that we talked about earlier with me seeing more anxious kids and watching the data, you know, watching the numbers that we were seeing And I thought, if I can get to the kids a little bit younger and hopefully start some practices and provide them with some tools earlier, then hopefully with practice, they'll start to develop some skills of knowing what to do when anxiety shows up or when that worry bosses them around in their brain. And hopefully by the time they get to middle school and high school, they keep building on those skills. You really have to get on offense with anxiety. So I was hoping a children's book could do that. And this is a book you could use in schools. You could use it in the classroom. It could be with counselors. And it's got a page in the back for parents and educators of do's and don'ts. And there's an actionable strategy in the book that you can use in real-time situations when anxiety strikes. So that book is called ABC Worry-Free. And what would the target audience be for that book? How old? It's designed mostly for like the K to four grades and the strategy can be used with kids and adults. So a lot of times you might have a child being read the story by a parent and the parent could be learning. I've received mail about that, that I read this to my kid, but I'm actually using the strategy. That's when you know you've written a great book, right? (laughs) There's another one. It's called, Are You a Bird Like Me? Tell us about that. So that book I wrote with my son, Nicholas. That book is also about facing things that we're afraid of. This one really focuses also on friendship and perseverance and the amazing things we can do together and really honoring the uniqueness of all of us. And these characters come together with all their different traits. They end up reaching their goal together. And that's a fun bedtime story. And I would say it's probably geared towards the same age group. You've also got a third book. It's called 15 Minute Focus. That one is going to be geared towards teachers and counselors and parents, and that is focusing on executive function and ways that we can, in in quick, practical ways, build executive function in the classroom or with a support specialist in the home setting as well. Well, you've mentioned a couple times that you were an anxious child. What life lessons have you learned 
by doing this work as a neuroeducator that may have healed a little part of you? Well, it definitely has helped me a lot because I was just a big old scaredy cat Mm -hmm. for many years. And I think one of the biggest lessons is about the failure, that the failure and mistakes are just part of the process and you can be vulnerable. You don't have to know all the answers. And that part about being nervous and moving forward at the same time has really been helpful for me to put myself in situations that were challenging. Maybe I wasn't going to get a book published. Maybe they were all going to reject the uh, proposal and the manuscript. And I was willing to do it anyway. So that's been a big help for me. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and what was life like in your house? I'm one of four kids. I grew up in North Attleboro in Massachusetts. Wonderful siblings who I'm still very close with. My mom plays the piano by ear, and I have a lot of great memories of sitting next to her playing, and and I thankfully can play the piano because of that exposure with her. And yeah, she loved to have parties and sing-alongs, and that's still, at 92, she's still doing sing-alongs whenever (laughs) she can. (laughs) What were the values that your parents taught you and your siblings about what was important when you were growing up? Definitely hard work, persevering, and sticking with things, even when they were tough. We weren't quitters. What I would say we didn't have, which was probably part of just our our generation, was we did not learn, like for example, with the anxiety piece, I did not learn how to manage it well. And that was just because we didn't really know a whole lot. The school that I went to didn't even have a counselor. (laughs) So a lot of the adults in my life didn't know what to do when my anxiety showed up. So that's something that I really want to be helping those kids like me so that you know there is something you can do. When you were growing up, who was your role model? I would say my mom. She was a teacher and I knew I wanted to be a teacher and she loved working with all students, but she had a particular knack for working with the kids that were strugglers. Going into the special education world seemed like a good fit for me. We all need someone, I believe, Noel, who believes in us. Someone who recognizes a skill or a talent early on and says, you know what, you're really good at that. You can do that. Was there anyone like that in your life? When I got to my first teaching job, Joan Sedita, she was my supervisor at the time. She definitely seemed to encourage me, and I feel like she saw more potential in me than I saw in myself at that time. She really encouraged me to keep growing, and she has been a really powerful mentor for me. She ended up becoming the headmaster at the school that we worked at, and then she started another school, which I became the teacher at that school with her. But then she started her own business, and I became a trainer for her. She's written several books, and I've written several books. So she's just been a great mentor for me and has encouraged me along the way. You attend in Boston College. The two of us are alma maters there. What was your college experience like? I really, really enjoyed BC. I think it was a great fit for me. The size of the school, I loved the education. The School of Education prepared me well, although I did learn probably the most that I needed to learn about education at Landmark School, which was my first job. Just met a lot of wonderful people that still are very close friends of mine. So I just feel it was a great community of people. How did motherhood change you? I would say motherhood has been 
biggest growth period for me. I learned so much from my kids that I'm so grateful for. It changes you forever, doesn't it? It certainly does. You are a trailblazer in your field. You mentioned some early mentors. Are you a mentor to others now? I try to be. Whenever I can, yes. Oh, I I have a passion for what I do, and I think there's so much more to be done that I like to share as much as I can and bring folks on the road with me if they want to come. Next three questions we ask everyone who sits where you are, and thank you again for coming here today. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I focus more on what I can control, and I start to think about, okay, you can control your thoughts about this. So how you think about it, how you talk about it, how you respond to this. And I will try to keep myself in a pretty (laughs) self-regulated mode because I know if I don't, my decision-making and my problem-solving skills kind of go out the window. And I do often ask myself, okay, what is this telling me? Do I have something to learn from this? Should I make an adjustment? Do I need to develop a skill? Do I need to do something differently next time? Sometimes it was just like one of those situations that you just have to go with the flow and roll with it. But it's always good to have a plan B or C. (laughs) What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along to our listeners today? I think it might be John Wooden, a basketball coach who's deceased now, might have said something like, if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not doing much. And I'm butchering the quote, I'm sure. But those kinds of thoughts really weren't part of my DNA. How can you learn from this and how can you keep moving forward? Final question. Right now, in this chapter of your life, what does success mean to you? I feel it's a combination of achieving some goals that are meaningful to me and feeling a sense of fulfillment about those goals. And I feel fulfilled when I feel that I've had a positive impact on others. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Noelle Foy, fondly known as Neuro Noelle. Find out more about her great work as a neuroeducation consultant, as a one-on-one anxiety coach, and of course, as an inspiring author. Just go to neuronoel.com. And thank you so much for listening. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone I should feature on the show, will you please let me know all about her? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y. O-T-E-R-R-Y dot com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.